To support our work at the Izzy and Mortada Picture Show and the work of other independent creators like us, sign up to listen to the podcast on Nebula. Nebula is the creator-owned streaming platform that hosts great videos and podcasts like the one you're listening to now. Sign up today at nebula.tv slash picture show, and you will get access to this podcast plus other great podcasts and videos. Sign up at Nebula and help support independent media creators. That's nebula.tv slash picture show. Hi, I'm Mortada. And I'm Izzy, and this is the Izzy and Mortada Picture Show. And today we have the absolute pleasure of bringing you a conversation with Jenny He and Dara Jaffe, who um, are the curators of the Pope of Trash exhibition at the Academy Museum. Jenny, Dara, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having us, Izzy and Mortada. We're so happy to be here to talk, John. Our pleasure. Nice nice to be talking to y'all. Wonderful. Well, I mean, I thought I would just start us out. Um, I'd love for people to get a sense of what it's like to actually put together an exhibition. I feel like a lot of people have no clue how that works. Um, So I'd love it if the two of you could just kind of walk us through what the basics of putting the Pope of Trash together looked like from conception to execution. Yeah, absolutely. This exhibition, John Waters' Pope of Trash, um, took about four years to put together from conception to realization. And of course, the heaviest phase in the beginning is all about research. So Dara and I deep dived into all of John's films, but also we went through his books, his collaborators. We went far and wide when we call when we are exploring what we call the blue sky period in terms of figuring out what the exhibition is. We very early on identify the tone of the exhibition. We also very early on decided on a foundation of how visitors are going to encounter the exhibition. So we landed on a chronological pretty much a chronological um, pathway for John from his earliest film to his latest film. And Mm. in the exhibition, we punctuated it with the opening gallery and then a musical interlude. And then we ended up with um, the exploring the fandom of John Waters. So that's really where we started off And then we identify lenders and folks who would be able to contribute to the checklist. All of the almost 400 works that you see um, in the exhibition. Yeah, so kind of echoing what Jenny said, but I feel like the first step when you approach an exhibition is you wanna do enough research to where you feel like you've become a subject matter expert on whatever it is the exhibition is about. And then you kind of have this narrative in your mind of, this is the experience that we want the visitor to have. This is what we want them to learn. Um, And then you go out in search of objects that tell that story. And then the fun thing that happens 
as you go out to explore the objects available to you is that you might discover objects that will lead to new rabbit holes um, where you're like, wait, 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 we, we got to change this section. We need to tell this story that we just discovered, you know, from interacting with these, in many cases, um, you know, immediate artifacts, whether it's production documents, um, or, you know, correspondence, or maybe you're talking to a new collaborator. As Jenny mentioned, um, John pretty much gave us full access to the, the collaborators that he has worked with, in some cases, from the very beginning of his career. Mm. And um, everyone was so generous with us. We heard the same thing over and over again, which is, if it's for John, anything, you know, if John sent you, we will talk to you, we will welcome you to our home. Um, we will let you look through John accused of, of accused us of basically going through all his friends and stealing all of their objects, including <laughs> his home. He says every time he walks through his house and sees something that's normally on the wall missing, he thinks he's been robbed. Then he remembers it was us. Um, and yeah, it, um, you just you follow every rabbit hole until you kind of condense it down into both the realistic and the ideal uh, experience that you want your visitors to walk through. Yeah. And as film curators, uh, we like to compare ourselves to the directors of a movie. So <laughs> in, in that respect, Dara and I are involved in every single aspect of exhibition planning. So after this research phase, we go into working with so many internal teams to actually realize the exhibition. So everything you see in, in the show from, you know, the pose of a mannequin to the color of the wall, to how the cases look, to where everything is installed, every single element we work in such close collaboration with our exhibition designers, with our lighting designers, um, with our conservation team to, to realize that. So as curators, we like to say that, you know, we are pretty much the hub of everything that is happening. But when we when we describe ourselves as a directors of a movie, especially as film curators, it, it, mm -hmm. um, it's a really mm -hmm. easy way for folks to realize what we do. It's really it's a really gratifying process. You kind of you we have our vision, we have our curatorial vision, and we present it over and over again to every one of our collaborators. And then our design team can say, based on what you've told us, here's, you know, here's the physical and aesthetic design we think will tell your story, you know, yeah. and, and it's that way with, with everyone that we interact with. And it's, it's a really beautiful process. Yeah. So well, I, I want to go to your, um, what you mentioned about your curatorial vision and ask you about John Waters himself. Obviously this, um, this is at the Academy. John Waters has never been embraced by the Academy. He's never received a nomination from his peers. Um, so I wanted to ask you by choosing to feature uh, John Waters and to do a, to have an exhibition about him, what what are you trying to tell the Academy and its members about his work? It's a great question. You know, we as um, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, we are committing, we are committed to telling all sorts of stories of what makes up all the various approaches to this art and science. And John Waters represents a very important mode of filmmaking. He came up as a completely, you know, do-it-yourself independent underground filmmaker. He has an incredible singular point of view. Um, he has this traje trajectory across his career of going from complete outsider to respected insider, although as you said, 
hasn't seen, um, you know, hasn't seen all the accolades from the kind of upper um, institutions of film. And I think that makes it even more fun to, as the Academy say, yes, this is the kind of filmmaker um, that we are embracing, that we find incredibly worthy um, of exploration. And um, he also has, um, I, I feel like there are a lot of variations in how our visitors to this museum are aware of John Waters. You know, mm -hmm. you've got your diehard fans. Um, you've got your people who maybe you recognize him from his cameos or from The Simpsons. Yeah. And then, of course, there are people who haven't heard of him at all. And we um, we geared our exhibition to have something for every single one of those levels of knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, and and yeah, I think it I think it does make a statement as to the very well rounded approach we want to have in thinking about filmmaking in general. Mm -hmm. Well, Jenny, I had a, a kind of a follow-up question to that. In the intro of your exhibition book, um, you talk a lot about how like there's kind of a contradiction in the sense that he is this filmmaker who's known for being so subversive and underground, but at the same time, he's kind of over time become a favorite of very established, respected institutions. Um, and so I'm wondering, like, how do you maintain that spirit of rebellion and subversion in an exhibition space like I mean how do you do that and keep it appropriate for guests of all age and um, <laughs> things like that with with John Waters specifically yeah I think you hit the nail on the head because we are being subversive by bringing John Waters into an institution like the Academy Museum in a way I talk about how John is now in a unique phase of respectability that he himself, you know, constantly um, point out. He says things like, oh, I'm so respectable, I could puke. And that in, <laughs> it, in itself is very subversive for John because he's known as this purveyor of filth. He's known as, you know, somebody who brings shock into everything that he does. And yet his film has, his films have now been um, part of the National Film Registry. What I find very interesting is that Pink Flamingos was actually the first film to be inducted into the National Film Registry, followed by the next year, Hairspray. So we are entering um, a period in John's career where he has now graduated from, you know, as Dara mentioned, this, this pariah, this person who's been an outsider on the outskirts of cinema history, not within you know the institutions, but John has crossed that line. And to him, that is more subversive than anything because he is upending the expectations of what you think of when you hear John Waters or a John Waters film. And the fact that you can come to the Academy Museum where it is our mission to highlight um, all forms of filmmaking and all filmmakers, not just the ones of course who have been honored um, by an Academy Award, it is part of our mission. It is very much um, in line with what we like to do with all of our exhibitions is to, to spotlight all different kinds of filmmakers. But yeah, John has now become really respectable. And, and he, <laughs> I opened my essay, you know, with that, that that is a new high for him. Yeah. And he, 
um, continues to have such a good sense of, I mean, he has a good sense of humor about everything, but he especially has a good sense of humor about his, you know, the space that he occupies. And um, I mean, I'm sure you, you saw it just in his, um, you know, the original essay that he wrote for the publication. Um, and I think what came through there is his sense of humor about being included um, in an institution like this, but also um, like very genuine, um, you know, humbleness and gratefulness. But I will um, tell a story that I think like gets at the heart of his sense of humor about this. <laughs> um, this is after Jenny and I had spent a lot of time with him. So I knew that this joke, you know, the story I'm going to tell. I knew this joke would go over well. There's not a single other person I would ever say this to. But when we first showed him um, the exhibition space that would eventually become his exhibition space, at the time, it was our Miyazaki exhibition. And um, early on in that exhibition, there were some cases that held all of Miyazaki's Oscars. And I pointed to the cases and I was like, look, John, we could have some cases for your Oscars and it would just be empty. <laughs> he <laughs> thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever said. He made me repeat it like five times throughout the day. Um, <laughs> but I, I will also say that um, our, our exhibition ends with a gallery all about his fandom and it includes um, art that has been made for him over the years by his fans, including many representations of himself. And one of them is a little doll version of John Waters that a fan made for him. And this fan made this doll uh, holding an Oscar. And <laughs> that object we put as the very last object in the exhibition as a kind of wink wink from our end of, um, you know, it was probably such a in some ways a joke when this fan made this object and we're kind of completing the joke in a way. Yeah. Oh, I love wow, that. That's so funny. What a great story. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I think one of the interesting things that you also highlight in the book, um, and I'm sure is also in the exhibition, which I'm really looking forward to visit to visiting at some point, um, is how he kind of grows out of this underground I guess network first through avant-garde and then slowly he gets into more narrative works as he develops but I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that world um it just seems like a kind of like exhibition of filmmaking that doesn't quite exist in the same way anymore um and maybe how that enabled him to become the filmmaker that he became yes so John is a student of cinema. He has watched every single kind of film. Um, and he certainly gravitates toward certain films um, like the underground cinema of the 1960s, 1950s. He would take the bus from Baltimore to New York City and he would go to the, the theaters and he would watch um, all kinds of movies. He went to NYU for film school before being kicked out of the dorms. Um, mm. for pot, <laughs> for smoking pot. Um, but so John has had a very robust foundation of cinema history that not only looked at avant-garde films and underground movies, but people like um, Russ Meyer, you know, people like Pasolini and people like Bergman. And John has taken from all of these different filmmakers the parts that really uh, call speak to him. Um, you know, if, if there's a, a very 
uh, gratuitous puke scene, for example, in a Bergman film, John has very much said, okay, well, that you know, that is something that um, he very much was drawn to. And what I really find interesting is that John has continued this habit to today. Every single year, he makes lists and lists of his favorite movies of the year. And what I find fascinating is that um, Darren and I, when we were looking through the research, he's made these lists since the 60s. So before they were published, um, you know, in art form and, and such, he was making them for himself. And what we um, highlight in the exhibition is also this foundation through a chronology. So we see John as posters for Warhol films. We see John being inspired by Chelsea Girls to create his film, Roman Candles. So John has been experimenting through his early shorts and early features, how other filmmakers have been representing their um, their work, but John always elevates it and um, executes it in a way that is through his very specific lens. So when you're looking at Roman candles, you can start to see John's gravitation toward narrative. And that's what I found fascinating is that kind of divergence between what John was influenced by um, and then what John brought forth through his own films. He's always gravitating towards story. Uh, and that's really what you see um, before Pink Flamingos. So when you look at Mondo Trasho, which is a film that doesn't have a sync dialogue, he's, he's still creating a story through it. So while he was influenced by perhaps non-narrative, non-linear avant-garde um, filmmakers, and certainly underground um, filmmakers as well, such as, um, you know, Ken of Anger um, and the Kuchar brothers, John then took it very much a step further towards his own trajectory and towards his own aesthetic and style. But yeah, it's really about, you know, the non-narrative to narrative that really where John has diverged very early on from his peers and his um, filmmaking influences. I know he talks a lot about having good bad taste <laughs> and you talk a little bit about what that means like how would you define that and what do you think distinguishes bad taste from good bad taste I don't know if I would venture an exact definition but what I will say maybe maybe you will which I would be very interested to hear but what I would say um is that you can't just um, think I'm gonna do something in good, bad taste and just think of like the tackiest thing you could think of or like what seems to be like, this seems trashy. I think what makes it work is that you have a very specific point of view. You have a very specific jumping off point. Like maybe there is an aspect of culture that you're sending up. Maybe you've seen something that is your idea of bad taste and you want to kind of channel that while putting your own perspective on what makes it bad in your mind. Um, but I think, you know, so many people might try to replicate what someone like John Waters does and they can't because they're trying to get the effect without having like the reason for getting that effect. Um, they're not understanding that um, 
yeah, it's it's something very specific that he is doing. He has a very specific point of view. Um, he has very specific cultural kind of um, marking points that he's in dialogue with. Um, and he also, I think, comes from a very specific um, cultural time and place where, you know, like a lot of his movies, um, maybe period pieces, they may be looking at a specific slice um, of, um, of, you know, class culture. And it's because it's what he kind of grew up looking at and having a very specific point of view on how he would subvert it. But also in some ways how I don't celebrates might be too far, you know, when he's portraying something that he truly does find very tacky, but he's putting his twist on it. Um, but to me, it is having um, a genuine point of view on something that you want to subvert and mm -hmm. not just thinking what's what's the thing that I could do that is in most poor taste. But I would be curious what you would say about your definition of good taste. Yeah, I mean, I think simply good bad taste is knowing that you're purposefully doing mm. something in bad taste. Bad bad taste <laughs> is thinking you are actually doing something in good taste, but it's terrible. So it's the it's the purpose and it's uh, intention that goes. That's what makes John's work so um, endearing and significant and prominent is because he he puts so much intention into his bad taste. What I also find fascinating um, is how much humor is key to John's success because everybody thinks about John Waters as, you know, the director of Pink Flamingos and, and the person who's always out there to shock you. I mean, mm -hmm. our exhibition is called Hope of Trash, but underlying all of that is how humorous John is and how laugh out loud funny he is. I mean, every single conversation that Dara and I have with John, we're cracking up. <laughs> <laughs> We can't, we have to put ourselves on mute because he'll say something in a meeting and we're just cracking up. <laughs> and so I think it's the humor that is also underlying um, good, bad taste. You have to be able to have that freedom to make fun of yourself and also to be in on the joke. Mm -hmm. and John does it with a lot of love so for instance if he's making fun of a certain kind of culture maybe that he grew up with in Baltimore and he's talking about you know his hairstylist and he says you know only they could get you know the kind of like putrid Baltimore hair you know dye jobs and hairdos that you're going to see in Baltimore you know he is saying that with so much love for the Baltimoreans that he's talking about um, and he's going to portray it in a way that yes shows how ridiculous he thinks it is but also underlying and this is how he approaches I think all of his satire is it's always with love for the subject. Dara I'm going to paraphrase something you said earlier so I apologize if I um, um, you know misuse your words but I think um, what I understood from when I asked you about the academy is that you know the academy is the ultimate insider John has always sort of worked outside. He's an outsider in the industry. So can you talk about um, how that tension manifests itself in this um, exhibition? I think um, I love the way you describe it as tension um, because I think you can see um, 
John, like the way he playfully approaches this, actually, here's something that I thought of um, as you're asking that question, which is John's response. Anytime somebody describes him as a cult filmmaker, he always says, I hate, I hate the word cult. It means, yeah, you made a smart movie, but only seven people saw it and it didn't make any money. And he was like, I always wanted to make money. I always wanted to be, um, you know, I wanted my movies to be the most popular movies in the world. They never were, but that's mm. what I wanted. And mm. I think, but, and, but of course he has a good sense of humor as he's saying that. And I think if you look at the ways that he set out to get popularity from the very beginning, um, he, he's such a provocateur. He's such a showman. Um, he knows that if he puts his own personal face out there um, as kind of, um, you know, the, 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 the crazy man who's behind all of these movies and he really, really emphasizes what makes his movies so shocking, you know, pink flamingos handing out barf bags um, to the audiences, like, you know, you might need to puke. This film is so disgusting. Um you know, that's how he positioned himself from the beginning, but he has always very, very actively um, participated in self-promotion. Um, so I think that's a fun level of tension there is like, yeah, he's he's saying, um, I want to make films that everyone sees, but also the way I'm going to get all the people in the theaters is to like challenge them to, um, you won't believe just how shocking this is going to be. You might actually need to throw up while watching my movie. And that would be the highest compliment. Um, and, and then also within, um, you know, within our exhibition, um, we do kind of point out the ways he's kind of like dovetailing or interacting with mainstream cinema. I mean, first of all, um, you know, his earliest favorite movies are fairy tale stories like Cinderella and the Wizard of Oz and Peter Pan. And of course his favorite characters are the villains of those movies, mm -hmm. but he does he works all of those plot points into his own filmography. I was thinking about that, Jenny, when you were talking about his move, his, his movement from non-narrative to narrative. I think part of what that is, is that he does want to send up those more mainstream movies um, that inspired him in some way. Um, and then also in our exhibition, we, we have on display um, the membership invitation card um, he got from the Academy. Uh, when he became a member um, and um, it, his his sponsors were David Lynch and Claudia Weil. So you see their signatures on there. Um, so it keeps it keeps that element of, uh, you know, of kind I of like that. challenge to the status quo. But it's yeah. also still the Academy. Um, it was so funny when John was like, how do you have that? And it's like, John, we are the Academy. <laughs> <We're> the <laughs> um, and so you see the way that he has been flirting with both mainstream and underground. Um, again, I, I love the way you use that word tension. Um, but I think he, from the beginning, um, set himself up as someone um, who could be in that conversation, even if it was just to be there to be in opposition. It's mm. like he, in many ways, has positioned himself in conversation with both mainstream and underground. Yeah. 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 Not all underground filmmakers are going to be in Alvin and the Chipmunks three <laughs> or whatever he was in. I know. I can't stop thinking about how Alvin says, I saw pink flamingos and I can't stop thinking about him watching it. I can't. <laughs> I know. Do we think uh, Alvin threw up? Is that, <laughs> that canon? 
<laughs> Probably. <laughs> really liked it. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, well, I'd love to talk about John Waters as a queer filmmaker, um, because so much of conversations about, you know, like queer identity and cinema are often spoken about in terms of representation these days. And that's not exactly what I don't think he was thinking about when he set out to start making um, his own films. So I'm curious how you kind of think about those things together. Like, have you talked to him about um, whether he sees those films now as being representation or what he thinks about that subject? Yeah, we've always said that John has been ahead of his time since the very beginning in that he includes characters from all walks of life in his films. And I don't think it's an intentionality where John is thinking I have to you know, represent every character from all walks of life. It's simply that they fit his story. And also because these people were his friends and, and he drew from his circle very early on to be his cast and crew. So it's really interesting that John now seems so inclusive because thankfully we're at the moment where we are representing on screen in, in our movies, you know, this expansion of stories that we're telling that represents everybody who are watching these stories. But John has always been doing that. And John has been doing that because they are a part of the story. They're part of the people that he's cast. And he is in some ways perhaps telling stories from his point of view. And in some ways, whether it's conscious or subconscious, as you know, a, a queer filmmaker, John is telling stories from his perspective in a way. But I don't think it is an intentionality in which he set off to say, I am a queer filmmaker, these are the stories I'm making. He's telling interesting stories. He's telling stories that are interesting to him. Um, you know, he and David Lockery and, and Divine together created Divine's persona, along with Vance Smith, who created the very iconic makeup and hair design um, for Divine. So it's very interesting to see the personas um, that are very much today now so important and, and essential uh, to queer viewers, to queer um, uh, filmmakers. But it, when, when you're looking back, it's very clear, at least to me, um, that John was telling the stories that he wanted to tell. And that is also why he's been so significant and he's been so unique in his career because he hasn't shied away from anything. He hasn't shied away from his own perspective. He hasn't shied away from the outrageousness of his stories. Um, he is provocative in that way. He is intentional. He is provocative, but he's provocative in that he's showing characters that people didn't see on screen, you know, for him, sometimes divine its persona on screen, let's say in, in female trouble, certainly is not, um, one would say it's it's not a positive portrayal of a character, right? It's, it's somebody <laughs> yeah. who is committing sure. a lot of bad <laughs> acts. Um, but that is, that is also going into like 
how much can can John push the audience? How much can he tell a story that has never been told before? And you know, he has representation from all sides of the spectrum. He tells stories uh, for grandmothers. He tells stories for you know teenagers, and it's very interesting to see in each and every single one of his films that he's actually skewering a different subset um, hmm. of the audience. I mean, thinking about a serial mom and and kind of the sending up of, you know, the prim and proper matriarch uh, and, and creating that hilar hilarity and thinking about the fact that, you know, the suburban mother and serial mom is a, a villain in the most, you know, controversial ways. Uh, one of the crime scenes that we replicate in our exhibition is when she skewers, uh, <laughs> literally skewers um, somebody and pulls out his liver with a fire poker uh, and, you know, um, for standing up her daughter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just, just thinking about that kind of, that kind of uh, <laughs> representation is, um is really part of what makes John so different in mm. terms of telling the the stories that he tells. Yeah, his, yeah. His, his films are radically inclusive. He's willing to meet anyone from any walk of life, kind of where they are without judgment. Um, and I do think there is a very inherent um, queer landscape to his films. Like even when he's portraying, um, you know, maybe what would otherwise appear to be a, a heteronormative relationship, um, divine's the one, you know, uh, you, you've, you've either got divine as one half of the relationship, or he, he always says he loves casting non-queer actors in queer roles and queer actors in non-queer roles. And there's just this kind of very inherent fluidity. I always think about the line in Pink Flamingos when the, um, the newspaper man says, divine, are you a lesbian? And she says, yes, I have done everything. So <laughs> kind of like in that one line, it's like embracing, yes, I'll take that label. And also I'll take any other label you have to throw at me. I've done it all. Yeah. And I think both are important. Cannibalism. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Any, are there any like tidbits about the exhibition itself? Like favorite um, props that you got or uh, favorite costumes or anything that you'd like to share that the audience might see were they to go visit? I like to highlight um, the glasses that Mink Stoll wears as Connie Marvel. And it's a very unique situation where we were able to find probably a dozen or so existing objects from John's early film. So Pink Flamingos, of course, was before uh, the Wesleyan University archive was established. To give a little bit of background on this, um, in 1986, Janine Basinger of Wesleyan University approached John and said, hey, I would like to establish the John Waters archive at Wesleyan University. And from that moment on, all of John's films, the costumes, decoration the props would be sent to Wesleyan so Darren and I had a wealth of material thanks to the foresight of this collecting but prior to that time all the objects were scattered literally to the wind and and Mink herself held on to these glasses 
And the first time she told us about them, of course, Darren and I, our jaws just dropped. We said, we absolutely have to have these glasses in our exhibition. And she said, no, well, they're dust. They're dust. There's no way you can show them. They're literally dust. <laughs> and so we said, no, no, please show them to us. You know, we'll, we'll see what our conservation team can do. And so we're so she sends them to us and they're in several pieces i don't think mink was exaggerating when she said they were dust but our amazing conservation team led by sophie hunter were able to restore them so from the first you know thinking about 1972 how many years these glasses have been in existence they haven't been stored in you know temperature and humidity controlled situations uh, but they've been restored to a form where they look like almost the way they were on screen. Um, but beyond that, beyond the physicality of this object, the fact that this we're able to bring something from that time physically in front of you as a visitors, we've seen it really as one of the more um, highlighted objects, let's say on social media, and we've seen people just gravitate toward the glasses while we were in the galleries as well. Um, this is, of course, one of almost 400 objects in the mm. exhibition, but it's, mm -hmm. it's very poignant to me because of the rarity of this uh, object and what it represents because it's so iconic. You think about pink flamingos, you think about Connie Marble, um, and that's really what you see. Yeah. And exciting. Oh, sorry. Um, an exciting thing I've noticed about um, taking people through on tours is that I feel like I truly see a wide range of what people's favorite objects are. Um, usually there are some hero objects that people always go crazy over, but in this truly, like I'm seeing that level of craze over a wide variety of objects. Um, but if I were to point out one, um, just to be able to tell the background story behind it, um, the, his um, 1981 film, Polyester, um, he filmed um, in the suburbs on an actual cul-de-sac production kind of, um, you know, rented a house in this very prim suburb of Baltimore. And at the end of filming, um, everyone we talked to who worked on Polyester told us they had this huge yard sale for the neighbors. They sold off, um, you know, all of the, the props and the set dressings. And Jenny and I already were making several trips to Baltimore and we were, you know, visiting all of the major locations from not only John's personal life, but of course, as many film locations as we could. So um, we decided um, that we would go to this very cul-de-sac where they shot polyester and 40 years later, start knocking on doors and seeing if anyone um, was there uh, when they filmed or might have even bought something at this yard sale. And um, Jenny had some magic working that day. She she pointed to a house and she said, that one. Let's start with that one. I was just standing closest to it. <laughs> <laughs> no, magic. Um, and uh, it just so happened that that first door that we knocked on, um, the the only person in the entire neighborhood that had been there during filming still lived there because he lives in his childhood home. Um, wow. He very warmly invited us in. Um, and we found out that not only had he at the time taken photos of the set, um, 
So he had all of these photos that have never before been seen. And we we used one as a very large photo mural in the gallery. And you can see John right in the middle of directing. Um, so not only did he have never before seen photos, but his family had in fact bought something at the yard sale. And it was the thing we were most hoping to find. Um, it's a bar cart that Divine serves her husband drinks from every, every <sighs> day when he gets home from work. You can see it right <laughs> at the beginning of the film. And this bar cart has been in his family for the last 40 years. His sister uses it as a bar cart um, and they were generous enough to lend it for the exhibition. So that's a very unheard of story where you just go start knocking on doors and uncover wow. something that, you know, nobody knew is still there. That's incredible. It is the incredible. The bravery that takes to knock on those doors too. Wow. <laughs> I really respect that. That's the fun part of curating. That's why we're curators, to have an excuse to just randomly knock on people's doors. <laughs> um, so all these objects kind of brings to mind is like, how do you decide who who to feature, who to dare? Like, you know, the, all these fabulous objects that you just talked about is like, of course, that's that will be the Joan Waters exhibition. That's why there is a Joan Waters exhibition. You did Almodovar. I can totally see. I haven't been to it, but I can see. Imagine what would be in an Almodovar exhibition or a Miyazaki exhibition. But for the life of me, just you know, to mention one no frills filmmaker, not a lot of objects. Steven Soderbergh. He, I assume, you won't get an exhibition. That's just me. You don't have to answer that. But my question is, um, so how do you choose who to feature beyond just them having an acclaimed? career and work and objects that you can um, show? I think that's the most gratifying challenge for us uh, as a start. We get very excited about showcasing all different filmmakers, all different films. And when the challenge comes, you know, you just said Soderbergh. So mm -hmm. I, I accept that challenge, Murtada. <laughs> okay. we, we can tell stories in, in so many different ways. In, in film exhibitions, we have the ability to tell stories through media, through montages, through physical objects, through graphics, through text. We have the ability in this spatial arena to walk you through a film or a filmmaker. We can create soundscapes. We can create emotion. So mm -hmm. in, what we do is a little bit different than let's say watching a documentary or reading a book about a film or a filmmaker. What we wanna do is immerse you as you walk into the gallery, uh, into the filmmaker's aesthetic, the style. We do that with color. We do that with not only of course, um, spotlighted, highlighted objects, but that's a challenge for us in the beginning to decide how are we going to tell the story? Mm -hmm. And as Sarah mentioned, when we walk into each gallery and we see visitors gravitating toward different things, we know we've done our job well because we're not speaking to just one person or one kind of audience. We're speaking to a, a variety of audiences and visitors um, of all different um, walks of life, akin to John who speaks to different visitors as well. Mm. So yeah, I, I think that's a very interesting question because that's really where we start with. How many objects are out there? What are what do we populate the checklist with? But it doesn't mm. have to be something physical. We for pink flamingos, maybe we have probably uh, I want to say off the top of my head, you know, six or seven um, original objects from the film. But we're still able to tell that story um, by connecting it 
to other films. So so in Pink Flamingos, we're talking about the trash trinity. We're mm. talking about flamingos, we're talking about female trouble and desperate living. And so we also want to be able to build that kind of connectivity from start to finish. That way, if you weren't a John Waters expert in the beginning in our first gallery, which we call a shocking start, which is uh, anchored by a montage uh, of all of clips from all of John's films weave together thematically. So you kind of get a very focused burst of who is John, even if you don't know him. But if you are a, you know, hardcore diehard fan of John, you walk in and you can, you know, almost say every single line, you know exactly what you're seeing. It reminds you of his entire filmography. And then as you go through every single gallery of the exhibition, hopefully you build upon your knowledge and, and you take bits and pieces as you walk through. And then at the end, you see a holistic story of who John is, of what his films mean. But at the same time, if you only have 20 minutes and you walk through, we also build that kind of primary layer in the exhibition where you're just gravitating towards one or two different objects and you're able to feel that you've gotten a complete experience. But if you want to spend three hours there reading, watching, looking at everything carefully, you're also going to get, you know, layers and layers of um, this connectivity that we've built into the exhibition. Mm -hmm. Flamingos is a really good example because when we were curating the space, we were like, okay, the number of original objects that survive from Pink Flamingos, and we do have some amazing ones in there, but altogether, they do not equal the footprint that we would like Pink Flamingos to have, given that it's one of his absolute most major films. So in collaboration with our design team, we came up with the idea to recreate the trailer in which all the main characters live, recreate it as a screening room. So you're able to walk inside this trailer and actually watch the trailer for Pink Flamingos, which has its own significance um, in the room that we explain. Um, and I love to always tell people that when Pat Moran, um, John's longtime um, casting director, associate producer, has worn many hats, when she saw that trailer, she turned to him and said, I thought we burned this. <laughs> um, but so that, you know, creates the footprint that we want. The, the key is, um, you know, you, you need to create an experiential um, movement for the, for the visitors, give them something immersive that they they can't have you know watching youtube at home mm. that they can't get anywhere else but in person but it doesn't have to be object based mm. um, and when we are um you know choosing who to feature in the museum sometimes we do start with an object sometimes it's we know we have access to this incredible thing we're going to build a whole gallery around it and sometimes it's that we know we want to feature a particular story and we don't know if there are objects out there, but we're committed to telling that story and we're going to find a way to bring it mm. to our minds. And, you know, we always, um, when we talk about significant movies or significant filmmakers, we always ask ourselves, significant to whom? Because there mm. are a lot of different answers to that question. And one reason why we decided to make our museum um, so um, like modular and that there are a lot of moving pieces that can be switched out very frequently. It's because we wanna tell as many stories as possible, um, not only over the course of you know our life as a museum, but also at any given moment. Um, so that's, 
our kind of very general answer to how we choose <laughs> on the future. <laughs> yeah. Um, I love what you said. Significant to whom? Well, you're both very significant to us now. Thank you so much <laughs> for um, talking to us about um, Joan Waters, the exhibition at the Academy. Um, and before we go, can you tell our listeners where the exhibition is, how they can visit? And if there is, um, for, for listeners who are not in Los Angeles, is there any component they can check out or read online or anything? Yes, absolutely. Um, please visit academymuseum.org for information to visit John Waters' Pope of Trash. It's on view through August 4th, 2024. Uh, and we hope everybody comes to Los Angeles to visit. And if you would like to get a preview of the exhibition, the exhibition catalog is now available for sale on academymuseum.org and through your local book sale. Jenny and Dara, thank you so much for coming on the Easy and Mortada Picture Show. Um, and until next time, you can follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at I am Picture Show. I am at Mortada underscore E on Instagram and at ME underscore says on Twitter. And I'm um, BK Rewind on Twitter, BK underscore Rewind on Instagram. Thank you all for listening.